You are listening to National Security Law Today. It's a bird! It's a plane! It's a drone? Well, our next guest will be able to help us figure this out. We welcome you to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And we welcome to our virtual studio, retired Colonel Dawn Zoldai, a 25-year Air Force JAG Corps veteran. She is the founder and CEO of P3 Tech Consulting, as well as an internationally recognized expert on unmanned aircraft system law and policy. We are really happy to have her here as part of our series highlighting women's contribution to national security as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Welcome, Don. Thank you so much, and what a privilege to be here. So let's jump right into it. Our faithful listeners will know that we love having JAGs on the program, so we'd love it if you tell us a little bit about your impressive career, Don. Absolutely. So I was commissioned into the JAG Corps by direct appointment in July of 1993, so a really long time ago. I uh, had a great almost 25-year career, literally 24-7, 24, 24 years, seven months, performing a variety of duties at all kinds of different locations and echelons, wing, level, major command, combatant command, headquarters, Air Force, Air Force uh, Office of the Secretary. And I deployed forward for um, enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom, as well as for headquarters, U.S. Central Command requirements. Uh, my career culminated in my, um, my promotion to Colonel and as SJA or Staff Judge Advocate for the United States Air Force Academy. And after I retired in March of 2018, I became a civilian attorney for uh, the Staff GC uh, office as a Business of Matters attorney for the Air Force Academy. In that role, I focused on the Academy's governance, uh, fiscal, legislative issues, everything related to its university functions. And right now I'm the acting director of the Air Force Academy's Center for Character and Leadership Development or the CCLD. And so what I tell people is I do leadership by day, drones by night, weekends, holidays, leave. Uh, and of course I have to give the mandatory disclaimer that what I'm saying here today, of course, uh, does not represent the views of the DOD the Air Force Academy or the Air Force, and I'm acting here in my private capacity. Oh, we're shocked as lawyers that you had to reach out. <laughs> yes, we will have right. our disclaimer at the end, just, okay, to, just, to, just to cover it up. <laughs> there you go, that's over listeners, let's move on. All right, all right, we've heard a bunch about how being a, a JAG is basically a really good foundation to move on into private practice or business. Um, let's talk about your current projects because that would appear to prove that fact. So tell us what this P3 Tech is and why you started it. Sure, P3 Tech is a consulting firm. So I'm not giving legal advice in, in that capacity, but the goal is to connect people and companies uh, that are passionate about advanced technology platforms with policies, programs, and services that they need to succeed. The, the way that my company started was really, it all started with my passion for drone law and policy that really ignited in October of 2012 when I was a JAG and the Chief of Operations Law at Air Combat Command. At the time, I was working for General Bernie, who eventually became the TJAG, and we were doing uh, a lot with uh, drones uh, domestically. There was an explosion of state laws in 2013, mostly focused on privacy. And uh, if you recall that time in our country, Iraq was, winding down as we thought also was Afghanistan and a lot of these assets were coming home. And so 
the question became, you know, what are the, how are the rules different domestically than they are overseas because our operators were so used to focusing overseas. At the time, I formed the Domestic Imagery Working Group and helped shape Air Force and DOD domestic drone policy to answer that question. And that's really when my research writing and speaking began. And I just continued that. In uh, 2015, I began getting involved with a, a nonprofit called the International Conference on Unmanned Aircraft Systems. They put on a, a conference every year affiliated with IEEE, which is the premier engineering, uh, you know, like the equivalent of the ABA, but for engineers, basically. And that conference was mostly focused on engineers and academics with an emphasis on drones, of course. And um, I started bringing some policy and legal content to that conference. And ultimately in 2018, we created a legal track, a CLE track. And it was a great start. We had another one in 2019 in Atlanta. Uh, was very successful, really had a great time and learned a lot because we realized that having conversations between attorneys and engineers and operators and policymakers is key to move moving the industry forward and moving all of us forward. And so what happened in 20, in, last year in 2019 was uh, ICUAS decided even though it's international, it had always been uh, in the United States, they were moving their conference to Greece and we didn't see how a number of American attorneys were gonna travel to Greece for their CLA. So we're looking for a home and uh, then kind of what happened, other things fell into place in the fall of 2019. I received recognition as a woman to watch in UAS for leadership. And that That's was huge, really, very big, very big. Yeah, you know, it was really awesome. Um, it was a catalyst for me because uh, right around the same time, like all these things culminated, uh, Interdrone, where the Women to Watch Award ceremony takes place, the folks that run that conference, and it's one of the largest drone expo conferences in the United States, had approached me about helping them build some content. And so that, that kind of, again, all of those three events culminated in, in this idea, well, hey, maybe I should form a company and do this off duty and you know do it right. And so that's what I did. That's I created P3 Tech in October of 2019. And the vision for P3 is to be the premier international resource within the advanced tech ecosystem, developing the policy planning and programming solutions to fuel innovation for a better future for us all. And so and just before, if people are interested, we'll hyperlink um, in case they want to visit the website, kind of take a look at this and begin to sort of grow their knowledge. We'll hyperlink uh, the information on P3 Tech at, in the notes to this cast. Thank you so much. That's great. And on top of all of that, you're also a columnist for Inside Unmanned Systems Magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing? Absolutely. Uh, so Inside Unmanned Systems Magazine, it's, it's uh, in print and also online. It's, it's an amazing um, publication. And they hired me in, in around December to be their legal columnist. It's a lot of fun because their magazines have different themes. And uh, so far I've published uh, article on autonomous vehicles uh, and the laws that apply there. Uh, I've published uh, online about the FAA's proposed remote identification rule for drones and just recently published in their precision agriculture themed magazine about the Choctaw Nation and I was able to explore the nexus of federal tribal law, property law, and drone regulations because of the amazing things they're doing down there in Oklahoma. So that, that was a lot of fun. That is really, that's really interesting. And as always, we're gonna to link to those articles in the notes of the podcast. And
And right on theme for our series, I'd love for you to talk about your consulting work for women in drones as well. Absolutely. So uh, women in drones actually uh, are the folks that put on the Women to Watch Award. And so I forged a relationship with them early on uh, in my business as well. They, they hired me to be a strategic consultant to actually help take their Women to Watch in UAS uh, 2020 Global Awards to the next level. Just a second about women in drones. They're really the premier global platform for women in the drone industry and one of the top companies to watch in the drone industry for both 2018 and 2019. And so just uh, in this past month on March 16th, they officially launched their, their fourth annual Women to Watch Awards program. And what this program does is it recognizes women who are making significant contributions to the industry. Uh, women that, for example, uh, inspire innovation solutions, lead people's and people and companies, they promote other women in leadership positions, and they positively shape public perception of drones or empower other women to enter the industry, as well as advocate for inclusive practices in STEM. So um, really excited to announce they have four individual awards. Uh, the categories are leadership, entrepreneurship, education, and public safety and service. And I, I mentioned the last because because I was involved in helping shape that, I thought it was really important to include folks that are in public service. I know so many in the ABA national security arena, so many women, uh, female attorneys that may be working on drones. You should really consider nominating yourself or a colleague for these awards. There's also two team awards this year, the UAS humanitarian team award and the innovation team. And these are co-ed teams. So, um, you know, the first one recognizes uh, someone doing drones for good and the innovation team recognizes organizations or companies uh, that are out there doing innovative stuff. So um, that's, that's basically it uh, on, on the Women in Drones. The award, uh, you can go to womenindrones.com to nominate somebody and uh, it closes out on May 14th. The nominations are free. Uh, and the folks will get recognized at the Inner Drone Conference, which is going to take place in Dallas, Texas this year, in August. All right, folks, just remember, we're doing 19 uh, Amazing Women in National Security Law. We've got Dawn as one of them, but you should also think about who might be nominated and who should even, hey, self-nominate. You know what? Women don't do that. Self-nominate. She's telling you to do that. Do you hear this loud and clear? Uh, we have to take stewardship of ourselves. So this is an amazing message. All right. So you're also planning a conference for something called Interdrone. Interdrone. What is that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I just mentioned Interdrone uh, and they were one of my first clients, basically. I'm not actually planning their conference, but I am providing conference planning uh, expertise to them as an adjunct conference planner. Uh, I'll be... Uh, so Interdrone is one of the largest com uh, commercial drone expos and conferences in the country in the United States. And this year their event is going to be held August 17th to 19th in Dallas, Texas at the Hyatt Regency there. So in my role as an adjunct planner, conference planner for them, I've been able to curate a series of panels, sessions, and special programs that are packed with experts in the field to help elevate the conversation in the drone industry, including a number of attorneys. I'm going to talk to you about uh, in a minute here. But to your theme of 19 women, I just wanted to highlight that it was really important for me as a conference planner for Interdrone to help increase the global female participation in the overall program, because in my eyes, together we're better. And 
you know, there's been a number of amazing women I've had the privilege to meet through my business and through women in drones and being a woman to watch uh, in UAS. Uh, but these women are leaders, innovators, entrepreneurs, mentors, visionaries, rising stars that are making impacts on the drone industry now in the future. And I'm really proud to say that one of the, our speakers, in fact, our keynote is going to be Miss uh, Patricia or Trish Rifo, who is the president-elect of the American Bar Association. So very excited that Miss Rifo is able to uh, join us at Interdrone. And so hopefully you can join us there as well. Uh, I've also, for Interdrone, written a number of pieces for their online newsletter, uh, including about remote identification and um, also whether or not it actually violates the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or the FISA. So, so let's just pause because our listeners are very much into FISA, FISA law, FISA reform. I hope you heard what she said. Keep that in mind. That might be something to check out for national security lawyers. That conference isn't the only conference you're working on, is it? No, I'm actually working uh, with the Commercial UAV Expo Americas. Uh, that is another very large uh, commercial drone expo and conference in the United States. And their event's going to be held in mid-September at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. But one of the things I'm doing for Commercial UAV is content for their newsletter. And so you'll hear a lot of, you know, I've been saying a lot about remote identification. Uh, one of the articles I wrote with regards to RID uh, was uh, the tie into law enforcement and law enforcement authorities. And my latest article for them is on drones being used in the pandemic. So that's a really interesting application and very timely. We're, we're really glad to have you on to talk about this. We'd love to hear a little bit more about um, using drones uh, in the pandemic because most people, you know, most lay people think about drones in a national security sense just in terms of targeting terrorists uh, in the battlefield. But there are lots of other ways to use drones in national security ops. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. First, I'd like to say, you know, the pandemic is clearly a national security issue for our country. And, uh, you know, when I, when I think about this problem and what are the tools that we can use to help combat it, when human to human contact is the problem, I say send in the robots. And, you know, when you look at the current crisis, we're really being held back, I'd say, by the UAS regulations that are in place that seem to be constraining the maximum use or employment of drones uh, that could be used better for the good of society. Um, you know. Oh, and let me let me interrupt you there. Can you? What's UAS for the non-military? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, unmanned aircraft system. So. I, I used the term drones and UAS interchangeably. Um, so UAS uh, drones, same thing. But what I was, what I was, you know, saying is that you know we have this crisis, we have this opportunity to use drones in so many more ways than we're currently using them. And when you look at other policies that are out there uh, and even laws, they're evolving in response to the crisis and this unprecedented situation in which we find ourselves. And so then I ask myself why are we not revisiting UAS policies and regu regulations to enable things like, for example, remote package deliveries, whether it's food or medicine, uh, police patrols, instead of having them out in cars, you know, they can be using drones, uh, communications, all kinds of things. And I'd say, even if you don't want to, there, there doesn't need to be ch radical change, you can do it on, in a, at a minimum on a temporary emergency basis. 
So how specifically are drones being used in the pandemic? Well, I'll tell you, other countries have really embraced this technology and are using them in novel and uh, useful ways to combat the coronavirus. So I uh, probably read yourself uh, in open media, Chinese uh, in China, they're using drones to enforce quarantine restriction. They're aiding in street and hospital disinfection and delivering construction, medical and food supplies. They're also using drones to remotely communicate. For example, they're equipping them with megaphone payloads. And I'm sure you've seen the drones yelling at people to get back inside their homes. And there's actually been reports of drones taking temperatures through people's windows to check if they're infected. So very, very wide use of drones there. Uh, Europe actually is using them as well. Spain began to employ their own version of megaphone drones to aid in quarantine enforcement, as did France. So globally also drones are being used for media purposes. Uh, some really great pictures that no one else would be able to get of empty streets, families being self-quarantined, uh, and, and rapid hospital construction in, in Russia, for example. And uh, what have we been doing here in the United States to deal with the COVID crisis in terms of drones? Well, uh, our use of it has been much more limited, uh, definitely not as extensive as some other countries. Um, one example is in California, the Chula Vista Police Department. They're very progressive with their drone program. They just purchased uh, two drones to use as loudspeakers as well. And if you, you want to know more, there's an attorney named Grant Galat. He's the founder of the UAS Practice Group and a partner at Adams and Reese uh, in Louisiana. He's going to be uh, one of my guests in Vegas at this event called Law Tech Connect. He recently authored an article in Drone Life, which, by the way, if you want to know about what's happening in, in drones, check out not only Inside Unmanned Systems Magazine, but Drone Life. It's a, basically a newsletter. Uh, basically, his article talked about how the drone industry is contributing to the fight. And so uh, there's a, a gentleman named Ken Haynes. He's actually from Colorado, I'm proud to say, uh, where I'm from right now. And his company, AGL Drone Services, he's using drones to create virtual meetings when he's out doing construction site visits. Uh, Tom Walker from a company called DroneUp. Their company is doing amazing things, inspections of remote facilities, media captures, they're dealing with limited package deliveries, safety management, security monitoring, situation awareness, and even some of this te remote temperature readings. And last but not least, a uh, gentleman, uh, retired chief, Charles Werner, he, he has a group called Drone Responders. He's put together a COVID-19 task force to gather lessons learned on how folks are using drones. And uh, finally, a, a gentleman named Chris Todd from the Airborne International Response Team, or AIRT, is used, they're using drones for airborne awareness and media coverage. And so uh, in another uh, recent podcast, uh, market share podcast called Can Drones Make a Difference During the COVID-19 Pandemic, other industry leaders such as Ken Stewart from Aeros, it's spelled not the way it sounds, A-I-R-X-O-S, it's a GE company. Ken discussed what drones could be used for right now. And I, and I say could because they're, ne they're not necessarily uh, being used this way. The example he gave was, if you recall the cruise ship, I know that we had a number of them with problems off of our various coasts, but there's one off the California coast. Uh, and he said that instead of using a Black Hawk helicopter, 
drones could have been used to deliver the test kits and retrieve them and bring them back in a much more efficient, safer, and cheaper way uh, than we did with, with the Black Hawk helicopter. Just one great example of a use that we're, we're not doing. Um, and I, what I'd say there is that all, the, all these speakers, all these experts have agreed that the current regulatory environment in the United States does limit our drone employment in a way uh, you know, that we could be more fully operationalizing drones. So they're, they're, they all recommended just let's gather lessons learned and be ready for the next one. But, you know, my view is the operations that we have in these times have already been occurring for years, that we have the research and development, testing and evaluation to go ahead and do these operations now. So let's talk a little bit more about that. You're saying we already have the experience. Um, like, what is that, what does that consist of? So there's a little bit of history here. Uh, in 2016, uh, the FAA passed the Part 107 regulation. That enabled operations of small UAS weighing less than 55 pounds that didn't require airworthiness certification. So that was really, I'll call it the commercial UAS rule. Uh, that rule was limited insofar as you could not do operations over people, you cannot do operations at night. You cannot, of course, go above an altitude of 400 feet or beyond visual line of sight. All of those things required a waiver. And then any large UAS, anything greater than 55 pounds uh, or anything that would be outside of that rules parameters would require some kind of exemption or waiver or other certification. But here's the point. Those waivers and exemptions have been granted. Uh, since 2016, and there are companies out there who know how to perform, I'll call it complex operations. Let's add to that, even before Part 107, in 2013, the FAA selected six test sites and added another one in 2016. So a total of seven test sites. We're talking North Dakota Department of Commerce, State of Nevada, New Mexico State University, University of Alaska Fairbanks, Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi, Virginia Polytech Institute and State University, and Griffiths International Airport, as well as New Mexico University. All of these locations, pursuant to their test site authorities, have been partnering with industry and conducting testing and evaluation and research and, and development since 2013. In the last five years alone, they facilitated more than 15,000 UAS test flights uh, in support of R&D. And these included this beyond visual line of sight flight, uh, the command and control links and equipment needed, uh, UAS or drone-based and ground-based detect and avoid systems to avoid collisions when there are a number of drones in the air at one time, cybersecurity software system testing, and the ability to carry loads of varying weights. In addition to this, they've been doing hazard and risk mitigation tests and evaluation and building safety cases for complex drone operations. I'll give you one example. State Farm Insurance in the Virginia test site built a safety case for beyond visual line of sight and operations over people. So this insurance company for a year working with Virginia did dozens of experiments, including how to address the risk of when the drone might abruptly lose power. And based on that research, the FAA actually granted approval for State Farm to fly over people and beyond visual line of sight in sparsely populated areas. And when I think of right now and, and these stay at home orders, 
people are not outside. When you talk about ops over people, there's no people out there, or theoretically there shouldn't be, right? So you're talking about sparsely populated areas. That's almost everywhere right now. So I say, let's do it. Okay, on top of that, uh, we have the part 107 waivers. We've got the test sites. And then there's an, this thing called the integrated pilot program. And the IPP uh, consists of 10 different project teams. And that's very specific to a state where state, local, tribal government agencies are partnering with the private sector to accelerate specific operations like within their particular area. And so the one example I'm gonna give you, and, and this is to test different operational concepts in the community, right? So in May of 2018, for example, the FAA selected the North Carolina Department of Transportation as one of these IPP participants. And their focus, I mean, talk about relevant to what's happening right now, is, to, is their focus was to deliver life-saving medical supplies and to run food delivery services in North Carolina. And so two years ago, in the fall of 2018, they began their first flights in the Raleigh area, collecting, uh, collaborating with a company called WakeMed. And in early 2019, UPS, in partnership with a Swiss company called Matternet, they launched a healthcare delivery service at WakeMed. And you know, the logistics system consisted of this Matternet M2 drone, a cloud platform, and they were able to transport packages up to five pounds over distances of 12.5 miles beyond visual line of sight and over people. And they're doing that right now. So in October of 2019, by October of 2019, they actually had completed more than a thousand deliveries successfully. And so at that time, the FAA approved the first, we'll call it drone airline under the part 135 standard certification that's an air carrier certificate. And that permits UPS to rapidly scale drone delivery of hospital operations on a national scale. So that capability is out there. And uh, a gentleman named Basil Yap from the North Carolina DOT is, is one of the folks that's gonna be in, on my panel in September at Commercial UAV. So I think uh, just to, to bring this home, uh, five pounds is far more than most medications weigh. Uh, so that is very promising. Exactly. So you just laid out a bunch of cases with all of these examples and all of this good R&D to validate drones being used in this ways. What is holding us back from using them this way today? Well, interestingly enough, as I mentioned, there, there have been waivers granted and we have these test sites and we have the IPPs but the test data actually has not been thoroughly analyzed. And further, it's not really been very transparent to the public. Uh, and when I say public, that includes other drone companies. And so what happened just this past year, January, 2020, the Government Accountability Office did a report. It's called Unmanned Aircraft Systems FAA, literally title, quote, could better leverage test site program to advance drone integration, end quote. They performed an audit uh, of the FAA drone operations and the test sites from July of 2018 to January 2020 and made several recommendations, basically, that the FAA needed to develop a plan to analyze the test site data to determine how they could use it to advance UAS integration and um, to publicly share the information. And so 
there's a lot of information out there. Folks have been doing things, but it's not been thoroughly analyzed at, or you transparent to the public of how the, how they've been doing it. So the kind of analysis you're talking about, it sounds like it could take years uh, to get straightened out. Is there anything that can be done right now to enable drone ops in support of the pandemic efforts? Uh, I would say absolutely yes, there is. So let's use the information we have now. As I said, there have already been part 107 waivers, exceptions to policies, part, 10, part 135 drone package delivery, uh, you know, certifications granted. We have the R&D, all of that. So what I'd say is the people that, the companies that have these approvals need to keep using them for good right now. Uh, whether that's Matternet, UPS, you know, make those deliveries, keep building, keep building the, the case uh, in the eyes of the public that drones can be used for good and they're critical tools for society, with societal benefits. For those that do not have those waivers at this time, I'd say they should start making their case now. Uh, you know, while maybe the IPP or test site information is not transparent, the Part 107 waiver information actually is. Uh, if you go to the FAA website, it's chock full of information. Um, there's a thing called a special government interest request that can be used in emergencies as an example. It's an expedited approval process that's applicable to first responders and quote, other organizations, end quote, which by the way is not defined, that respond to natural disasters or other emergency situations uh, that, that may already have an existing part 107 certificate or a certificate of waive, COA, waiver of authorization for ops. So we're talking firefighting, search and rescue, law enforcement, utility, critical infrastructure, things of this nature. And to date, uh, FAA has issued 3,983 such waivers, and 49 of those are for beyond visual line of sight alone. And so, like I said, there's the FAA website is amazing. You can go to it, uh, www.faa.gov. I'm going to, I know you guys will link to that, so I'm not going to read it all here, but um, that not only do they have information about the waivers and the certificates online, they also have posted trend analyses to illustrate what a good package, a request package versus a bad request package looks like for both beyond visual line of sight and ops over people. And so, so those are things that can be done. The other thing I'd say is other countries, let's, let's give it the UK as an example. You know, people's licenses are expiring and they can't get to the test sites to take their test or update their licenses. The UK has actually granted like a blanket approval through early June for all drone operators whose licenses expire. We're not doing that here. And I'm on a lot of Facebook and other, you know, chat rooms. People are getting very concerned about their businesses. They're not, they're going to lose their licenses. In addition to that, you know, some of these things, as I said, are not even defined. So why are we not? having liberal interpretations and rapidly moving out on these waivers or exceptions to policies. Because in my eyes, this is the mission right now. You know, from a safety standpoint, like I said, ops over people, no people outside, to me, not as difficult as for a decision calculus. But here's the other thing, and this is where, uh, you know, probably like many of you, I love, I love digging deep in the books and, and researching, rolling up my sleeves. And as I was researching my article for, on this topic, 
I started deep diving into the Administrative Procedures Act, which is at 5 USC 553. And uh, come to find out the APA, you know, so that why are we talking about the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA at all? Because for the FAA, right, they have this requirement for notice and public comment for rulemaking. And so this remote ID rule, we maybe we'll talk about it later. They, they just posted that in December. The closeout was March. It's probably going to take them like two years to go through the 50,000 comments they received on that rule. But the APA actually has a special good cause exception in section 553B3B. And this allows agencies to forgo normal requirements of notice and comment rulemaking where it is, quote, impractical, unnecessary, or contrary to the public interest when there is a, and by the way, concern for public safety in emergencies is one of those grounds in the case law. And so my thought is, you know, we could be making rules right now. We could actually change the rules. And even if you don't do it on a permanent basis, maybe there's a temporary emergency measure in place that will allow some of this beyond visual line of, line of, line of sight, night operations, ops over people, as long as they're within validated risk parameters. And the FAA knows what those risk parameters are because they've been approving those. And so if there's ever a time to invoke this authority, this good cause exception for liberally interpret waiver and approval authorities, it's now. Um, so Dawn, that, you know, all that's really interesting. It sounds to me like what would have to, it, you know, FAA regulates these things. It seems like the agencies with the equities here in this emergency would be HHS, Department of Homeland Security, and probably IC components. Uh, so that's an interesting point. Uh, given circumstances, you'd like to believe that government could still work together uh, on that. Security is definitely one of the concerns for fully integrating drones into the national airspace. And particularly for this national security crowd, you know, a number of folks in the IC and law enforcement communities were involved in helping shape the notice of public rulemaking that the FAA recently put out on remote identification. Remote ID would require, uh, well, a lot of things. And, you know, we talk about commerce and manufacturers. You know, there, there will be a point where manufacturers are going to have to have capabilities built right into the drone. So the remote ID rule would, would divide the world into three kinds of, of drones, basically standard RID drones, limited RID drones, and drones without RID. Standard RID drones would basically be required to transmit by broadcast and by internet, these things called mes message elements. Limited remote ID would only be required to use internet, but for that reason, they're only allowed to fly within 400 feet of a control station. And then drones without remote ID would be limited to flying only in this thing they call a federally recognized identification area and within visual line of sight. So a very small area that would have to be created. The message elements are things like the identity of the UAS, the manufacturer's serial number, things of this nature, the control station latitude, longitude, uh, uh, unif you know, universal time mark as emergency status indicator. Here's the important thing about message elements. They will be broadcast through the internet for both standard and limited remote ID through these things called UAS service suppliers or USSs. We're talking maybe, you know, 
T-Mobile, uh, Aerial, you know, think about that. Think about your uh, cellular plan. That's what it would have to be. And the key is they would be publicly accessible, all this information. And the information includes where the operator is located, which when you think about law enforcement, that's a win, right? They'll, they'll be able to track where the, the operator is. But think about it from the, stand, the perspective of the drone operator. Joe Q Public could use their cell phone to figure out where that, that operator is flying. Why do they need to know that? All they need to know is basically the equivalent of a license plate number. And so this is part of the criticism. So this rule just closed out, like I said. Um, it, and by the way, it would allow the uh, law enforcement and IC communities to triangulate message elements with registration data to get a fuller picture. But ironically, it's, the, it's been the law enforcement community has been pretty vocal about it's still not enough, enough information to actually help them have a risk assessment. Because when they roll up on a car, and they run your license plate and all those databases that are connected to that, they know if that person has a domestic violence conviction. That's, that information is not in the FAA database when you register your drone. It's literally like your phone number and maybe your address. So lot, lots of uh, interesting commentary about the remote ID rule, but that is one response as the main response right now to the security concerns and it's ongoing. So I actually want to follow up a little bit about on the negative uh, use cases for drones, um, particularly in the law enforcement context, right? So, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about is as these capabilities grow, um, what are the constraints going to be on law enforcement, right? So, the, you know, when we're talking about, when you were talking about um, drones being able to take temperature outside of people's homes, it immediately like brought up the Kylo case, um, you know, where the Supreme Court ruled on law enforcement um, taking a temperature outside of a house in order to determine that someone was growing marijuana inside. And so what can you talk a little bit about people's anxieties around, you know, government overreach with, with using with overusing drones or using this technology um, in, in a way that that is overreaching? You know, absolutely. I mean, look, with, with any any technology, there's there's good use, there's bad use. And I think the 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 focus of legislators at the state level in particular since 2013 has been to constrain law enforcement's use of drones. Uh, there was an explosion of state drone legislation from 2013 to 2016 um, that basically prohibited law enforcement from using drones to collect information or evidence absent a warrant or other particularized exception that they created at the state level, some of which they made up completely that were not in, you know, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, and, and some of which were very much well enmeshed in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that they didn't even include, like consent as an example, you know, as an example, you know, consent as an exception to the warrant requirement. Some states that wasn't permitted. If a law enforcement got consent, but it wasn't in the statute, the police couldn't use the drone for that purpose. And so that has definitely been a focus of, of legislative activity, trying to constrain police activity. But the example you give of taking temperatures at people's windows, you know, would that be law enforcement doing that? Or would that be some other health agency? I don't know that answer. But definitely, you know, we need, we need to look at what, what's the balance here, right? So what's the balance when it comes to privacy 
and security and safety. And I think that's been the, the, the difficult juggling act this entire time when we're talking about drones. Yeah, I think uh, that sounds like a right balance. I, there are Fourth Amendment, obviously, there'll be consistent uh, Fourth Amendment considerations no matter what. Um, and I, I think those are unlikely to be resolved um, anytime soon. One and two, every time they gets resolved, I think the technology will you know, improve or, or change and those questions will have to be addressed again. So setting some very broad standards would probably make a lot of sense. But I think in, we're, always, we're also gonna talk one more um, sort of publicly known uh, negative scenario though, is the idea of drones, you know, drones with a sufficient payload or drones period, or their parts um, being purchased by, uh, you know, foreign individuals, American individuals who may be terrorists um, and many of these things obviously are on the export control lists. Uh, but what are your thoughts about preventing that from happening as this industry continues to explode and, and inevitably will after this pandemic? Well, when you think about the RID rule, the whole purpose of having that, right, is for the law enforcement and IC community to be able to identify friend versus foe. I mean, that, that's, that's the concept. Whether that achieves it or not is a whole different issue. But what you're talking about right now is basically what I'll call counter drone or counter UAS, which is a whole entire area of practice. And there are technologies out there that can actually, you know, detect, deter, defeat drones, uh, you know, the people that are flying drones with nefarious intent. The challenge in the counter drone arena is 18 United States Code Section 32, which is the Aircraft Sabotage Act. Okay, a drone is an aircraft, and that statute prohibits, you know, tampering with, destroying, damaging aircraft, or even tampering with the aircrew. And so when you think about, and that applies to law enforcement, okay, there, there's no blanket exception for law enforcement that they can tamper with an aircraft. So special authorities have cropped up, like, for example, with, for the DOD, 10 United States Code 130I, came into play about 2017 when the DOD advocated they needed counter drone authorities that didn't violate things like the wiretap statute, Pen Register Act, right? The, the, the Aircraft Sabotage Act. You know, when you think about a drone, it is a cyber entity. Think of all the, and, and it's electronic and the data that is transpiring between the ground station and the aircraft. Think of all the statutes that could apply to those communications. And that's why counter drone and this security arena is so challenging. The only other thing I'd say on that is in 2018, uh, Congress in their FAA Reauthorization Act gave additional authorities to the DHS, to DOJ and the United States Coast Guard in particular to have counter drone authorities as well. Thank you. So this is a fascinating topic and you have given us a lot of great resources and mentioned a lot of good conferences coming up. Are there any other events or informational resources or ways that you would recommend people get more involved in this subject? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the one thing I'll mention here is I am running a what, what I'm calling a Law Tech Connect Continuing Legal Education event. It's going to be on September 15th and in conjunction with the Commercial UAV Americas at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. I am very uh, pleased to announce that the American Bar Association's 
Science and Technology Law section is serving as a co non-financial co-sponsor of that event. And so it's, it is going to be the first of its kind one day CLE workshop. It's gonna parallel and leverage the larger Commercial UAV Americas program and Expo. And so we're gonna focus on US global regulatory policy and ethical issues related to advanced tech with an emphasis on drones. Our topics include federal, state, local, tribal, global regulations, privacy, security, business law, artificial intelligence, autonomy, and we're even gonna have a special personal wellness session uh, that is geared towards innovation practitioners. I've already gotten approved seven credits, CLE credits, six general and one substance abuse in the state of Nevada. And so that's gonna be uh, likely transferable to other states. And our faculty for this event is gonna be world-class. We're talking about former Air Force JAG and now the general counsel of a company named Skydio, Brendan Groves, uh, drone pilot and lawyer both, Jonathan Ruprecht. He's actually authored books, uh, for, drone books for the ABA. And we're gonna have GCs and policymakers for Eros, Kitty Hawk, Skyward, and a whole bunch of legal practitioners like Grant Gallat, I just mentioned, and Basil Yap from North uh, Carolina DOT, who specialize in drone law or in the drone industry. So this event's open to anybody interested in how law is gonna shape the future of drones in the United States and globally, and registration should be coming open here soon. So hope to see you guys there. So Donna, I gotta say, I think you may have set a two-year record for most uh, references in a single podcast. The notes of the show are gonna be like 15 pages long. Um, you are definitely an example of how uh, extensively a woman can contribute uh, massively to the national security space. And we really, really thank you for all of that. Absolutely, and like I said at the beginning, it's really an honor and privilege to be here with you today and, and uh, to share a little bit about drones and the law. So thanks for the opportunity. And we'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. We will continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and technology that affects national security law. Uh, and remember, the conference that Dawn is referencing is going to be in September. I believe that most quarantine, if not all quarantine, will be over by that time. So go ahead and visit that website, see if it's something of interest to you. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And not to drone on, the standing committee, I can't believe, Elisa, you didn't, I can't believe nobody made that pun this entire podcast. <laughs> the standing committee on law and national security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on fast moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your laptop screen. We've already had one disclaimer today, but don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.